0: I hope you uh, picked up a a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you came in. Uh, We continue our uh, sermon series today on excelling in our love for one another. And again, for the sake of our guest, we're taking a very simple approach in this sermon series. We're just walking through the one another passages in the New Testament. Uh, to learn how we are to relate to one another within the body of Christ, uh, how we're to love one another as Christ loved us, uh, to provide credibility uh, to our advance of the gospel, because we've uh, emphasized over and over again, it's our love for one another in the body of Christ. It's our unity coming together to advance the gospel that provides the uh, credibility for the message that we share and the message that we uh, preach. Uh, Today we come to the uh, only one another passage that's found in the book of Philippians. And we're going to see in a few moments that's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where it says we're to regard one another uh, more important uh, than ourselves. But as I've been doing in uh, all of these messages, we not only want to look at that particular one another verse... Uh, We want to see it in its larger uh, context because I think it has so much more impact as we do so. So uh, following your sermon notes, uh, you'll notice that first page sort of provides an introduction, lays a foundation, and then uh, the backside, we get into the heart, the meat of this particular message, and that's when the uh, PowerPoint will begin. But look at the uh, introduction as we look at Lesson 7, The Mind of Christ which is the key to church unity. Two of the recurring themes in the book of Philippians is the secret to true joy and the importance of maintaining the right attitude, which in experience are inseparably linked. Uh, The two primary things that rob us of joy are circumstances and people. If we didn't have to deal with circumstances and people, we'd all be happy, right? Uh, Well, those are the two primary things that rob us of our joy. Therefore, our our attitude, our outlook towards the circumstances that we confront and the people that God brings into our life will determine our joy or our lack of it. Now, in chapter 1, we discover circumstances could not rob Paul of joy. Why? Because of his single mind to live for Christ Uh, those verses verses 20 and uh, and 21 read with all boldness uh, Paul says this is my heart's desire that Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain now before we move on in the notes it's important to remember Paul wrote these words From prison. He was awaiting trial before the Roman Emperor Nero. When Paul wrote those words, he did not know if he would live or be executed for his faith in Christ. But because of his faith in a sovereign God who promised that he would cause all things to work together for the good of the believer and the greater glory of God. Uh, Look at how Paul viewed life's circumstances in the next statement in your notes. See, Paul viewed circumstances not working against him, but for him, in order to know Christ deeper, and to make Christ known to others. Paul is not the prisoner of Rome, he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ, Uh, The chains he wears, he calls my bonds in the cause of Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 1 of Philippians. He is now facing a civil trial. He is set for the defense of the gospel. Paul never looked at Christ through his circumstances, but looked at his circumstances through Christ, which was the secret to his joy. In other words, Paul saw circumstances as God's tools to fashion him more and more into the likeness of Christ and to provide a backdrop and a platform to make Christ known to others. Now moving on in your notes, as we move into chapter 2, we discover people could not rob Paul of his joy because of his servant attitude to love like Christ. Paul viewed people not as means to get what he wanted, but gifts from God to provide the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. Therefore, like Christ, Paul's joy was never determined by what he received from others, but by what he gave to others. And just pause right there again. We're right back to God's sovereignty. In other words, what enabled Paul to maintain his joy Even when he was confronted with the most difficult of people, I mean people that were persecuting him, that were trying to kill him, take him out, were back to God's sovereignty. Just like he knew God was sovereign over his circumstances, just like he knew God would not allow anything to touch his life, that God ultimately would not work for Paul's good and God's greater glory, Paul also knew knew because of God's sovereignty he would never allow any person to touch his life unless God was ultimately in control. And, that, and that, that person, again, no matter whether you would view that person as a good person or a bad person, that person is God's gift to me. A gift to give me the opportunity to learn to love as Christ loved. And that's what gave him that joy. Now, moving on in the notes, notice this about the Philippian church. The Philippian church was facing uh, external persecution, but their greatest struggle was internal disunity which threatened the credibility of their witness and the effectiveness uh, to advance the gospel. These struggles provide the basis for Paul's exhortation at the the end of chapter 1. And these verses, 27 and 28, sort of sum up the theme core behind this book, what Paul is after as he writes this church. He says, Only conduct yourselves... "...in a manner worthy of the gospel." You might want to circle that word conduct. It's a fascinating word. Uh, From the Greek word that's translated here conduct, we get our English word politician, politics. What Paul is saying is, you need to conduct yourselves like citizens of heaven. Because what you are is a colony of heaven that I've planted on earth to make my glory known to others. So he says, I want you to conduct your lives. I want you to live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the calling that I've placed on you. Now, what does it mean to walk worthy? Look, he tells us, standing what? Firm. In one spirit, with one mind. Notice, striving together, unified for the faith of the gospel. And in no way alarmed by your opponents, those that are bringing persecution against them. Now again, before we move on, please do not miss the connection between these verses and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, which we looked at last Sunday. In Ephesians 4, do you remember? We discovered, what does it mean for a believer to walk worthy of their calling in Christ? To be diligent. To be diligent to, to work to do what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says that's what it means to walk worthy of your calling in Christ. Christ, by His death on the cross, He not only reconciled us to God, but He reconciled us to one another. As He tore down all the walls of hostility and racism and prejudice, And he gave us the gift of unity, harmony within the body of Christ. And Paul says, if you're going to walk worthy of your calling, you must jealously guard that gift of unity that was given to you by Christ. And if you do not, that's how you walk unworthily of your calling. Now, here in Philippians 1, 27 and 28, we see the very same thing. We're to walk worthy. He says here, of the gospel. How? How? By standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together, standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, picking back up where we left off in the notes, notice the emphasis on all church members having what? One mind. And moving into chapter 2, this is what we're going to discover. Paul explains what the one mind is. And it is the mind or attitude of Christ towards others. The great lesson in chapter 2 is that the only sufficient basis for the unity in the church is each member. Each and every member adopting the mind of Christ in their attitude toward one another. So now, following your notes, the backside of those notes, the mind of Christ, the key to church unity... And if you have your Bibles, turn them to Philippians chapter 2. And let's just read first these eight verses, and then we'll work through them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, in the way the Greek text reads, He's basically emphasizing, and yes, of course, there is encouragement in Christ. And if there is any consolation of love, and of course, there is love in Christ. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is fellowship of the Spirit in Christ. And if there is any affection and compassion in Christ, and of course, there is. Then he says, make my joy complete. By being of the same, what's that word? Mine. We're back. This, this, this whole emphasis in this section, going back to chapter 1, verses, uh, verse uh, 27, is this idea of the church needs to be in one mind. So he says, Be, be of one, the same mind, maintaining the same love. Notice, united. We're back to unity in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. Or lowliness of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. But also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Who although he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God as a thing to grasp. To selfishly grasp. But he emptied himself. Taking the form of a. Bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. So look at that first point. The mind of Christ. We want to define now, what is the mind of Christ that we are to adopt as we relate to one another? And again, as we walk through this, we are specifically applying it to our relationships to one another in the church. But all of this has application in virtually every realm of life. Especially marriage, family life, even relating to neighbors, co-workers. You could go on and on. Any area where you have to deal with people. The mind of Christ is first thinking about one another with the attitude of Christ. That's the heart of it. The mind of Christ is thinking. It has to do with my thoughts about one another with the attitude of Christ. Look at verse 3 and verse 5 again. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. a Desire to put yourself upon a pedestal and be noticed. But with humility or lowliness of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Have this attitude in you. Why? Because it was also in Christ Jesus, your Lord, your Master. And you're His servant. And you're to follow in His footsteps. Now circle two key words... In verse 3, circle the word regard and the word important. These are fascinating words in the Greek text. That little word regard, if you were literally translated, it means to let lead or to let command. And the word important means you're superior. And it's fascinating, both of these words were often used as military terms. In other words, Uh, Like a soldier, uh, you're to let lead, you're to let command in your thoughts as you relate to others that they are your superior, your commander. And if they are your superior, what are you in relationship to them? A servant. And that's the very heart of this passage. And notice he puts the uh, focus on thoughts. has nothing to do with your feelings. I mean, your feelings are going to struggle with all of this. I mean, we acknowledged that last week as well. We're talking about bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We're talking about learning to recognize those thoughts that are going to lead you away from this, that will bring divisiveness in the church, that will not bring harmony. Thoughts that, you know, know, we tend to say things like, well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. I I don't think that's a biblical attitude and perspective. I don't think God just wants us to learn to tolerate one another with the body of Christ. Or, you know, just say, you know, it's okay if I can just avoid this person, see how far away I can stay. No, He wants us to really embrace one another, even with our differences, even different perspectives. And uh, as we talked about in an earlier message, even different convictions on various preferential areas. And and He wants us not only to uh, embrace, but embrace one another with respect in admiration and to truly invest in in one another. And uh and think with me, isn't it fascinating? First time I saw this, it blew me away. Isn't it fascinating that the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle Paul to use military terms to to express where love begins, where servanthood begins? And why would he do that? It's very obvious. I just stated it. What he's communicating is what he's talking about. It doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about a person. It has everything to do with your thoughts. And again, bringing those thoughts captive. And not letting your feelings dictate your life. But obedience to God because he's worthy of that obedience. And because he's worthy of that obedience, and this is the life that he lived for you to bring you salvation, you're to live your life in the same way. You're to let lead in your mind, your thoughts, in relationship to every person you come into contact with, that they're better than me. They're more important than me. And I'm here to serve them, to minister to them, and to to take that attitude. So look at the application, and this is a great... This message is a wonderful reinforcement of everything we talked about last Sunday. It just, it just reinforces. These two messages are just perfectly blend together. The application is love, first and foremost, is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that, yes, will often run contrary to my feelings. We talked about this last week. God doesn't expect you to wait till your feelings are there before you love an individual. When he said, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, you know, feed your enemy, he didn't say you're to wait till you feel like doing good, or you're to feel like blessing them, or you're to feel like feeding your enemy. He's saying, obey me out of your love for me, because I'm worthy of your worship. Bring those thoughts captive. Don't let those negative, critical thoughts rule your life. Don't let those... Contrary feelings rule your life. No, you step out in faith. And as you step out in faith and believe me and obey me, trust me, that the feelings will catch up eventually. They'll they'll just lag behind for a while. And this is a biblical principle. Where your treasure is, there will be what? Your heart. Whatever you invest your life into will eventually capture your affections and your emotions and your heart. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark uh, 14. It's obvious we won't finish the message today. We'll finish it next week. But I want you to see this. I want you to see the example that our Lord set for us on this very point. That love is a deliberate decision to invest in the life of another person that will often run contrary to my feelings. Because the greatest demonstration of love... On planet earth was when Jesus went to the cross. And I can clearly show you that every ounce of Jesus' feelings were telling him to run from the cross. But he didn't let those feelings dictate his life. He brought his thoughts captive in obedience to his Father. And I just want you to see some of the words that are used to describe what Jesus was feeling as He was moving to the cross. This is Gethsemane, uh, verse 32 of Mark 14. Now, this is hard to understand. Jesus is, of course, God come to the world in human flesh, but here we see His humanity. It says, And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be... Now, these are the phrases I want you to notice. It says, he began to be very distressed. You know what the literal rendering of that phrase would be? That he was struck with terror. I mean, I'm talking about overcome with fear, with anxiety. Again, this is our Savior and His humanity. So as He's looking at the cross, knowing that this is what He was sent here on earth to do, to make an investment in your life, my life, to bring His salvation, although that was His calling, although, although that was His purpose, when crunch time came, He was struck with terror. He was struck with fear. He was struck with anxiety. And not only that, notice, and it says, and he was troubled. That word troubled means to be filled with unrest. We've all experienced this. He was just agitated. There was no rest for his soul, for his mind, for his heart. Just that extreme agitation that resulted from that anxiety and that fear that we just talked about. And then it says, and he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. I cannot express the depth of that in the Greek text. It's a grief that enveloped him, that surrounded him, that literally saturated his conscious mind. It was so deep, it was as if death had wrapped its fingers around his very shoulders. And then he says, and he went a little uh, beyond them, and he fell to the ground. That verb fail is in the imperfect tense, which, remember, which says he kept falling. In other words, he's oh, so overwhelmed with the fear and the anxiety and the unrest and the grief. Again, it's like death has a stranglehold on him. And he tries to get up and he's pushed back down. He tries to get up and he's pushed back down. And the Greek is he just kept falling, kept falling, kept falling under the weight of that stress, the weight of that anxiety and that fear. And you know, it was so great. It doesn't tell us here in Luke, I mean in Mark, but what does Luke tell us? That fear, that stress, that grief was so strong, he sweat drops of what? Blood. Blood veins began to burst. It was so strong, and he began to bleed out of his pores. But notice, despite all of that, it says, He fell to the ground and began to pray that it were possible the hour might pass. In other words, he's saying, Lord, my feelings are saying I want to run. If there's any way I can avoid this, oh, please, God, let me avoid it. But did he stop there? Notice, verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. What's that An acknowledgment of the sovereignty of God? There's nothing impossible to you. Remove this cup from me. Yet what? Not what I will, but what what thou wilt. See, his, his feelings were telling him to run. But despite that, he stepped out in obedience, and he obeyed the Father for you and for me. Think of the alternative if he would have listened to his feelings and not gone forward for you and for me. So going back to our text in Philippians, what's being communicated, this is the way Jesus lived his life. And if he's our master, if he's our Lord, we're to live in the same way. This is how we're to relate to one another. Even when we may be struggling with an individual, I mean really, really struggling, and, and our feelings really... He says, you can't be ruled by that. You've got to bring your thoughts captive to be, and you've got you to view that person as more important than yourself, and be totally committed to building bridges, to restoring unity and harmony in the body of Christ. Uh, let's do this last one, number two, and then we'll do three and four next week. Uh, no, let's not. Uh, I just looked at the time. Uh, I don't want to try to rush through this second one because it's so important as well, but Oh man, do we even need anything more than that first point? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I can't think of any passage that could bring any greater conviction to, to my heart, uh, to your heart. Uh, because it, it takes us to the heart of what it means uh, to love. Uh, to give ourselves sacrificially. And, and in this context, we're to do so... To maintain unity and harmony. In other words. He's basically telling us. This is, this is how serious this is. This is the depth you need to go. To guard the unity that I've given you as a gift. See we, we talked about this. We can't create unity. But we can do what? We can certainly destroy it. And sadly we do a good job of it. And he's saying. Hey I want to teach you a love that's greater than your differences a unity in the midst of your diversity. And so I pray that God will give us the grace to do so, whether it's in our marriages, in our families, or the church family itself. Father, uh, we all stand convicted by this truth this day. Uh, Father, you know the frailty of our humanity, but let us not lose sight of the fact You know about the frailty of our humanity because Jesus took our humanity upon Himself. And we saw that in Gethsemane. That was Christ's humanity experiencing terror, fear, anxiety, depression, grief. There's another passage where it talks about He felt like He was an orphan, isolated, and deserted. Yet, although that's where he was with his feelings, he was able to say, not my will, but thine be done. And he continued to go forward. And he embraced the cross for me, for each person here. That there on that cross, our sins would be placed on him. And there on that cross, he would take the punishment that we deserved the one who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, that today we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that is our Lord. That is our Master. And Lord, we acknowledge the simple, simplest definition of a Christian is we're a follower of Christ. So reality is, how can we claim to follow Christ if we re- reject Christ? What you teach us concerning what it means to walk worthy of our calling. To preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Realizing it's through our love for one another. The unity in the body of Christ. That testimony that you make your reality known to a lost world. So Lord, we acknowledge we have failed you in so many ways in this area. And we often have damaged the credibility of the gospel. So Lord, forgive us. But Lord, thank you that you never give up on us. And uh, continue to be our teacher. Continue to be our coach, our disciplinarian. Um, Lord, yes, use circumstances. Use people um, to provide us the opportunity To plunge deeper into the depths of Christ's character. And to see those circumstances and those people, even the most difficult of circumstances, as backdrops, platforms to make you known. And so, Lord, um, we really are back to your sovereignty. Do we really trust you? Do we really trust you? Because it's when we don't trust you that we take matters into our own hands. We believe our rights have been violated. We get angry. We get upset with one another, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in the church family. So, Lord, open our eyes to see how great you are in your sovereignty and to bow before you. And as Jesus did, to empty ourselves, to release to you our rights, our expectations. To give you the freedom to arrange the affairs of our lives, the relationships in our lives, the circumstances, the people in our lives, in the way that you deem best. Not us, but the way you deem best in order to accomplish your purposes in our life. To make Christ known and to make Him known to others. Um, So move in us. We know this is a process. It's not going to happen overnight. But Lord, you desire us in the process to cooperate with you. So don't let us turn from this truth let us embrace it and as we embrace it to trust you to do a miracle in each of our hearts and lives for which in Christ's name we do pray amen as the invitation is extended I'll be here at the front to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature possibly uh, God's leading you to become a member here at Edgewood and we'd love to have you unite with the church so we could uh, stand side by side in striving for the advance of the gospel and so I would invite you, as the invitation is extended, to please make your way down to the front, and then just share that with me. And uh, we just like to get your face before the people so they begin to love on you and appreciate you, and then we'll take you through that full process uh, to, uh, to, to membership. Uh, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you heard the gospel today, what, what Christianity is all about. It's not about rules, it's not about regulations, it's about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Who left heaven for you. And bore that fear, that terror, that anxiety, that depression for you. And he went to a cross, a painful cross. And he bore your sins to pay your penalty before God. He took the punishment that you deserved. And he rose again. And Jesus Christ is alive. And every person on planet earth has to determine, What am I going to do? Not with what we often call Christianity. What am I going to do with Jesus? Sort of like C.S. Lewis said. You don't have many options when you read what he taught. He either was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. And every person's got to make that decision. And if he's Lord, then he's to be what? Your first love. Your greatest passion. Your greatest pursuit. We're to follow Him with an uncompromising faith, regardless the price, counting suffering for Him, what? A privilege an honor because He suffered for us. So we would invite you, if you do not know Him, this very day to pray and to ask Him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life and then begin that walk with Him growing to become more like Him and being used uh, to make Him known uh, to others. So please stand as the invitation is extended and you uh, just be obedient to what God has spoken to your heart this day.